The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the church, and I've decided for the next few sessions on Sunday evening to look at the doctrine of the church and to try to understand what it is. And I think it's timely in that we had a new member Sunday this morning, and you had the chance to uh, state again uh, your commitment to be part of this church, if you are a church member. Uh, the covenant of our church begins this way, having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and on profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, in the presence of God and this assembly, most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. That's how it begins. And so we're covenanting together to be a people together, aren't we? We're called out from the world to be the church. And we're making promises, and then what is listed after that is a, a life so full and rich and difficult that nobody could do it uh, except by the power of the Spirit. But this is what we're agreeing to do with one another. And so I thought that it would be beneficial for us to try to understand, uh, at least in some uh, small way, the doctrine of the church. It is so important for us as Baptists, especially as Christians, and in this time in American history, I think, to understand what we're called to be in the world. Jesus, I believe, was speaking to his disciples, to the church, when he was saying, uh, the salt must continue to be salty. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be uh, made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. So we need to understand what we're called to be in this world. We need to understand what the church is. Now, a definition of the church is given as follows. The church is the community of all true believers for all time. Now, open to Deuteronomy chapter 4, and there you'll see uh, the beginning, I think, of the idea of the church. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, This is Moses speaking to the Jewish people. They're listening to him, and he is giving them their final words before they're about to go in and take the promised land. And in verse 9, Deuteronomy 4, 9, it says, Only be careful and watch yourselves closely that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to, the, to your children and to their children after them. And then in verse 10, it says, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. That word assemble is such a key word, isn't it? There's a sense of, of, of a congregation, a sense of an assembly of people who have come together, they're called out from whatever they're doing, and they're standing there, and they're looking up, and they're listening to the words of God. And that's what I think of when I think of a church. I'm thinking of people that are called out from the world to assemble together and listen to the words of God and respond to them. We see the same thing in Exodus 12. You don't have to t turn there, but this is the Lord, the, the Lord giving commands concerning the Passover. And this is what it says there. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. And then in verse 16, Exodus 12:16, it says, on the first 
first day hold a sacred assembly. There's that same word again. The word is kahal in the Hebrew. Assembly. And one, another one on the seventh day. So they have an assembly at the beginning and at the end. On the first day and on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. This is all you may do. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread because it was on this day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. So that is the foundation of it. And as it turned out, more fully in the life of Israel, there would be three times that all the males of Israel were to assemble together. They were to come together at the place that God would choose in the Promised Land. Eventually it became the city of David, Jerusalem. They were going to assemble together and they would worship together three times a year. And so the idea, I think, of the Christian church, of the assembly, has come from the Old Testament. Look at uh, Psalm 40, verse 8 and 9. In Psalm 40, uh, verse 8 and 9, it says, it says there, I'm sorry, verse 8 through 10. Uh, it says, Then I said, Here I am, I have come, it is written about me in the scroll, I desire to do your will, O God, your law is within my heart. And then in verse 9, I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, as you know, O Lord, I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth from the great assembly. You see that again. There's a sense in which the Jewish people always envision themselves as an assembly before God. Perhaps that came from their experience in getting the Ten Commandments. As they were standing there at the foot of the mountain and as a people they were receiving the Ten Commandments from God. But also the sense that throughout their history they were going to be assembling together three times a year, coming together and hearing the word. And so in the Psalms there's this sense of, a, of the great assembly. And what does he say here in, in Psalm 40? He says, I'm not going to withhold what I've experienced uh, in my relationship with you from the great assembly. I'm going to speak. I'm going to testify to your goodness. One of the things I love the best on Sunday evenings is when people give testimonies about what God's doing in their lives. And I think that this is a good scriptural foundation for that, that we're going to be speaking to one another. But again, there's the sense that we have been called out from the world, called out to be a people together, to be an assembly. Look again at Psalm 111, verse 1 and 2. In Psalm 111, verse 1 and 2, there it says, Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. And so it begins Psalm 111 with the word hallelujah, praise the Lord. And then I will extol the Lord with all my heart. Not only are they coming together to hear the words of God, but they're going to be praising God or speaking God's words back to him. They're going to be exalting him. And not only that, in verse 2, they're going to be pondering, thinking about the great deeds of God. So the assembly is coming together. They're receiving and hearing the words of God. They're pondering the great things of God. And they're also speaking God's words back to him. They're worshiping and they're praising him. So this is, again, the sense of the assembly. And then finally in Psalm 149, verse 1, turn there also if you would. Psalm 149, verse 1, it says, Praise the Lord, again, hallelujah, and then sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the saints. And so there we have the biblical foundation for what Bill Benson does. Isn't that right, Bill? All right, we're going to come together and we're going to be singing praise songs to God. We're going to be lifting up our, our voices in praise. We're going to be singing praise to him. 
So that's a sense of what the Jewish people were doing in the assembly. They were coming together. They were doing other things, part of the Old Covenant, but these things were lasting. They were going to be hearing the words of God. They were going to be reflecting and pondering uh, on the great deeds of God and his words as well. They were going to be speaking God's praise back to him and also to each other. They were not going to hide from each other what God had done. And then they were going to be singing praise songs to God. Now, the first time that you see the word church uh, in the New Testament spoken by who? Who's the first one to speak the word in the New Testament? It is Jesus Christ. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to zero in now and try to understand what the church is based on the New Covenant. But I think it's good for us to have gone through the Old Covenant realize the idea of an ecclesia called out, an assembly of people, is, is rooted deeply in the Old Covenant. It's rooted deeply in what the Jewish people were doing all the time. Not to mention what they did every week in their synagogues. That's another ma matter. But here they would come together and they would worship and they would praise. But now Jesus uses this word uh, church. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 and following, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. And so Jesus uses this word, church. Ecclesia is the Greek word, a sense of being called out to assemble together. And so he uses this word, he says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so Jesus makes a promise here that he's going to build something called a church. Now we're, we're not sure perhaps what that is until you get into the rest of the new covenant, but turn at Matthew chapter 18 and he uses the word again. In Matthew 18, uh, beginning at verse 15, he says there, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Do you see that? Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For wherever two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Now this is speaking about, I think, church discipline, a sense of the people of God who are watching over one another in brotherly love, and if somebody does something that's offensive, there's a certain pattern that, that we go through. But the final step is to tell it to the church, and the church is going to deal with it. Now we're going to talk later, perhaps next week, about church discipline more directly. But here we have this word church. Now, if you look at Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, you get two 
I think, somewhat different senses of what the word church is. In Matthew 16, you get this great enterprise that Jesus is going to build, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This thing called the church. It's what theologians call the church invisible or the church universal. It's the people of God throughout all generations, in all nations and tribes and languages and people who are able to make Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They're able to say that, having that revealed to them by God, the Father from heaven. They're able to make Peter's confession. They're able to say with Peter, you are the Christ, and they are the church. And Jesus said, I'm going to build that church, and nothing's going to stop it. That's the sense of the invisible church. It's the community of all the people from all ages who have been able to make Peter's confession. It's the true church of God. But then in Matthew 18, you have a second sense of church. All right? If your brother sins against you, you're supposed to tell him his fault. If he doesn't listen, you're supposed to take one or two others so that every matter established by two or three witnesses. If he doesn't listen to them, you're supposed to tell it to the church. Now, how are you going to tell it to the invisible fellowship of all people who have ever trusted in Jesus Christ? You can't. And so there's an, a different sense of the word church there, isn't there? One that we're perhaps a little more familiar with. The second sense is the visible church. The local assembly, it has a name, it has an address, it meets on Sunday. It's got a phone number and an internet address these days. You know what I'm talking about. It's identifiable and you can tell them of an offense uh, that a brother uh, has done to you and he wouldn't listen to the other steps. And so we have two senses, therefore, a sense of the church universal or invisible and a sense of the church local or visible. Now, the universal church is mentioned indirectly by Christ. Look at John 10, 16. Turn to John 10, 16. And there Jesus, I believe, refers to it, although he does not use the word church there. I think it's what he has in mind. The universal church, John 10, 16. Beginning at verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my father, uh, sorry, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now look what he says in verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. That is a very good description of that universal, invisible, spiritual church. One flock, one shepherd, everyone who hears Jesus' voice, everyone for whom Christ died, all of those covenant people that are drawn together into the invisible church. He says the same thing in John 17. Turn there, if you would, in his prayer. He prays in John 17, in verse 20. This is his so-called high priestly prayer. He begins by praying for himself. Secondly, he prays for uh, his immediate apostles who are sitting around him that night in the upper room. He's praying for them. And then he's going to expand his prayer out with that remarkable vision, that world vision that he has. And he says this in 1720, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
So here again is that invisible church. All of those who will believe through their word. Who's the there? Well, it's the apostles. The apostles are going to preach a message. They're going to preach the gospel. They're going to write it down in scripture. And for 20 centuries and more, now on into 21st century, people are going to be hearing the apostolic message. They're going to be believing, and they're going to be trusting in Christ. And, and right here in John 17, 20, Jesus prays for us. He prays for all of us. And so there's that invisible church. That sense of the unity of all people who have ever trusted in Christ. Now, if you're a member of the invisible church, you're going to heaven. Praise God, you're going to heaven. It's the very same thing we've been talking about in Romans chapter 8. You can get in, but you can't get out. Furthermore, you wouldn't want to get out. You're God's special called people, and you are his church. But what I'm advocating here also is membership in a local visible church as a strong and powerful tool to complete your journey here on this earth. Jesus had in mind both, didn't he? He had in mind that universal, visible church and also that local assembly of believers that could handle business close to home. And it's just, the, I think, the genius of Baptists to zero in on the second one and try to really understand who that group was meant to be, how we're supposed to be together. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1-2. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. I love being an expository preacher because you just stay in one place and you just go verse by verse. But I just feel led by God to do something tonight on the church, and so you're just going to have to do that, that nimble finger thing going from verse to verse. But that's all right. It's all there, and the biblical order is still the same as it was when you memorized it a little while ago, isn't it? So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul called to me an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Now look what he says, verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Do you see in verse 2 both the invisible and the visible church? Look at it again. He, he's saying who he's writing his letter to, and he's writing to the church of God in Corinth. Now, which of the two is that? That is the visible church. It has a geographical address. You could have gone there on a Sunday morning and worshiped with those people. I don't know if you'd have wanted to, given the other things I read about them in, in Corinth. It was an amazing church with all kinds of problems, all right? But you could have gone there. People could come into their assembly and watch them worship. They could fall down in their midst and say, surely God is among you. There was a sense of coming together. They were a visible church. But do you also see in verse 2 the invisible church? Who else is Paul writing to? Who else is he writing Corinthians to? Not just to that church there, but to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus. That's us. So we're, allowed, we're not reading somebody else's mail. It's addressed to us. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus, look what it says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere, and you could almost add the words, and any time, of all times, all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. There's that invisible church. We all have one Lord, one shepherd, one God. And we all belong there. So we should have membership in both churches, shouldn't we? We should have a membership in the invisible church through faith in Jesus Christ. And of the two, obviously that's the more important. Because if you're not in that invisible church, you're none of his. You don't belong to him. 
And so we must be a member of that invisible church through faith in Christ. But we should also be a member of a church of God somewhere. These folks were members of the church of God in Corinth. We are here in Durham, and so we should be members of a church, part of a church. And so we see both this idea of a visible and an invisible church. Let's delve into this a little bit more. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Ephesians 1. Paul there is talking to the Ephesian believers, and he uses the word church. Ephesians 1, uh, 22 and 23, it says that God placed all things under his, namely Christ's, feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Here's an exalted picture of Jesus. He's raised from the dead, and he's ascended, and he's seated at the right hand of God. He's far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. He's higher than any name that can be named. He's sitting up there at the place of absolute authority and power, and he is ruling over everything for the church. And I don't think it just means he's ruling the church. I think it includes that. He's ruling over everything for the church. I love that. There's a sense in which his sovereign rule, all of the things that Christ is doing in the world, are done for the benefit of this thing called the church. Now, which do you think is in mind there? Is that the church visible or the church uh, invisible? I think it would have to be the church invisible, that, that body of all those who have trusted in Christ, for whom Christ rules the universe. Later in Ephesians 5, look at, at chapter, chapter 5, verse uh, 25. Ephesians 5:25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now what kind of church is this? It's got to be that universal, that invisible church. That's his bride. It's who he's getting ready. He died for her. He's washing her with water through the word. He's getting her prepared. He's getting ready for that great wedding day. This is a good picture, a good description of that universal church. And also, uh, you don't have to turn there because we were just looking at it recently. In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, it talks about spiritual gifts. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, uh, those with the gifts of administration, speaking in different kinds of tongues. This, again, has to be the universal church because he mentions apostles. And all of us benefit from the ministry of the apostles. He has ordained these gifts, these spiritual gifts, for the church church as a whole to complete the work. And then finally, look at uh, 2 Timothy 2.19. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 19. All right. Uh, going back a little bit further, it says in verse 16, it says, Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are His 
and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. This is the church universal. The idea is that, is that false teaching from Hymenaeus and Philetus has spread and people have given up. They've fallen away. They are not interested in coming to uh, church anymore. They're not walking with the Lord anymore. Nevertheless, God knows those who are his. This is the church of God. And they will never fall away. They'll not be deceived by false teaching. They might be troubled by it, but they're not going to fall away as a result of it. The Lord knows those who are his. There's an inscription stamped on this invisible church. I know you. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And you will never be lost. You're safe and you're secure. And yet, let everyone who confesses the name of the Lord, let them turn away from wickedness. These are, these are a holy people, known by God and yearning for holiness. And so we see this idea of the doctrine of the invisible church. The final concept of this, I think we get the clearest indication is in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by what? Such a great cloud of witnesses. And so people ask, are we going to ha have fellowship with Old Testament saints? Absolutely. There's not two different churches. Ephesians 2 makes it very clear that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile is gone. And so there's just one church. There's one flock, one shepherd, one Lord, and one people of God. And so we have fellowship, in a manner of speaking, I've said before, with dead people. They've gone on before us, and they love the Lord just like we do. They've gone on before us, and they are up in heaven. And you know what they're doing up there? They are praising God, and they are waiting for you. They're waiting for you and for their resurrection bodies, which we discussed this morning. They're not going to get them until we get them, and we're not going to get them until the later folks get them. We're all going to get them at the same time. That is the invisible church, is it not? A sense of the unity of the body of Christ, of Jesus Christ, of his people. Now, we need to have this firmly in our mind. God is not doing a thousand different things in the world, is he? He's doing one main thing. He's building the church of Jesus Christ. He's building that invisible church. And we, by faith, are part of it. And therefore, the Lord Jesus, speaking of resurrection, said, Have you not read in the passage about the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm in fellowship right now with Abraham. He's still alive somewhere. And I'm in fellowship with Isaac. He's still alive somewhere. And I'm in fellowship with Jacob and with David and with all those who have gone before who have trusted in Christ. There is this invisible church. And so it says that only together with us will they be made perfect. And so when we die, it says in, in Hebrews 12:23, we have come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, and to the spirits of men, righteous men made perfect. This is a clear vision of the invisible church. Now, I think as we have this in place, we understand that by faith in Jesus Christ, that membership is going to travel with us everywhere we go, isn't it? That is, the, uh, that is the membership, the new creation membership that's going to get us in heaven. It's on the basis of that membership that we are going to heaven, and nothing will ever take it away. But the Bible also makes it clear that we must be in fellowship with visible saints as well. We need to be in fellowship. We need to be in a church where people can hold us accountable. And therefore, we have also a vision of the visible church. Now, we're only going to begin touching on this because I'm going to spend more of my time on it next week. But if you look at Acts... Chapter 9, verse 31, there we have clearly a sense 
of the visible church. Acts 9.31. It says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. We have a geographical location given for that church. And there were actually many churches there were assemblies throughout that area. And once Paul was trundled off away from Jerusalem, everybody enjoyed a time of peace. But I tell you what, Paul was just a fire breather, wasn't he? Everywhere he was, before he was converted and after, he just stirred up trouble everywhere. And once he left, the churches in those locales had a time of peace. It says the same thing in Acts 11:22. It says, news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. You can't keep up, just listen. Acts 15.41, Paul and Silas went throughout Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So in each of these geographical locations, there was a thing called a church. And the churches were strengthened. They were being united. They were, they were growing in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. They were assemblies, local assemblies. It was the visible church. All of the letters of the New Testament are written to visible churches, aren't they? Every single one of them has some church listed to the churches of God in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are the local and visible churches. Now, what I want you to do as we're closing tonight, we're gonna, I'm just beginning and raising this idea with you. We're going to, uh, God willing, consummate a little bit more next week, is the sense that I already, by faith in Jesus Christ, am a member of that invisible church. But I must be a covenant member of a visible church for the rest of my life. Wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, I must be in covenant fellowship with visible saints who can help me complete the journey of sanctification. The visible saints are here with us. We assemble with them on Sunday mornings. We worship with them. We pray. We listen to the words of God just like the Jews of old. We reflect them back in words of praise and prayer. We sing praise songs to them. And we encourage to God and we encourage one another in the faith. This is what we're called to do. And so I want you to begin thinking of yourself as a covenant member of the invisible church through faith in Christ, but a permanent covenant member also of a visible church wherever you are the rest of your life. Listen as I close tonight to the final statement that we make in our covenant. We moreover engage that when we remove from this place, we will as soon as possible unite with some other church. Was that visible or invisible? That is definitely visible. We are going to unite with some other church where we will carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. Now, next time I want to talk about what are the marks of a true visible church. There's a lot of assemblies out there, aren't there? A lot of assemblies. But the reformers gave us three marks. I want you to think about them over the next week, and we're going to talk about them next week. The three marks of a true church, visible church of God, are the right preaching of the word of God, the right uh, use of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and the proper exercise of church discipline. These are the three marks of a viable, visible church of God. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.